I'm David Kern. And I'm Heidi White. And I'm Tim McIntosh. And you are listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader. I have a question. When we do our little intro like that, it's a new intro for people who are long-term, long-time listeners. This is maybe the fourth episode we've done that. Should we, should you, should both of you be saying and before your names or should we be doing, I'm David Kern and then Heidi just says, I'm Heidi White and then Tim says, and I'm Tim McIntosh. Like, should there be a comma there or should we be using two ands? Uh, Reader's choice. And I think (laughs) as we have elect, I should say writer's choice and we have elected to omit the commas. Our listeners can't see that, so I'm glad that you're bringing it up, David, because now we're kind of walking them through what they can't see, the punctuation. Yeah. I mean, there are, some things are very important and some things are not. I will leave it up to your judgment to decide which one of those two things this particular thing is. <laughs> Heidi, what is your take on this? Because you're the one that says, and I'm Heidi White, well, instead of just saying, yeah. I'm Heidi White. I was just about to point out, this is really a question for me as the middle namer of myself. I'm the Great one point. saying the and message received. I'm Heidi No, I'm White. not making a statement. <laughs> it's just as you were saying it in my brain, it wanted to be a list with, yeah. with an Oxford comma, of course. And, and then you said Disney. the and, and for the, some reason, my brain said, oh, she said and. No. So I should, yeah. we should have a conversation about this for three minutes. Um, I think, are we done? Is that the end of the conversation? That's a wrap. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. It's a wrap. So this has been this week's episode of Close Reads. We are close <laughs> reading our intro. Uh, we are here to answer your questions about Hemingway's The Sun Also Rises. We will do that in just a minute. Before we do that, though, I want to remind you about um, the upcoming content that we are going to be having on the Close Reads Podcast Network. The first episode of uh, The Merchant of Venice over on The Place the Thing is now live. So you can go listen to that. Episode two will go up next week and so on and so forth. Uh, Tim and Heidi and Sarah Jane have been uh, working their way through that play. Uh, how's that going? Would you, on a scale of one to ten, Tim, where how well would you say your conversations are going? I think they're going really well because I told Heidi and Sarah Jane on the first episode that I changed my role for this for these episodes so that I am just the table setter. They are providing the appetizers and hors d'oeuvres and entrees they're doing all the work so it's going really well that's definitely not true we're not doing all the work but we do have a lot of things to say about this play <laughs> and we keep talking and poor tim is just not poor tim. so kindly kindly giving us room or else the conversations would be so so long Tim, who's your favorite character in the Merchant of Venice? Or the I most, maybe you're say, who's the your most favorite interesting. in the podcast? Thought you were going to ask. No, him I, I would never do that. I would change. never do that on the. She has air. the accent. She wins. Yeah, that does but, help. That yeah. does help. Um, who's your favorite character in the Merchant of Venice, Tim? It's probably Portia. To be honest, I'm not crazy about most of the characters. I think they're all pretty flawed. Uh, you mean like in terms of they're not well drawn by Shakespeare? Or no, just... no. I mean that um, like even Antonio, the title character, the titular character, is not a particularly admirable guy. I mean, he loves his friends and in that way he's an admirable guy. But mm. I think he's uh, anti-Semitic and I think like Bassanio is kind of a little bit not much of a grown up until late in the play. I think Portia 
carries it. Hmm. Heidi, what about you? Agreed. And I think that's intended by Shakespeare. The most compelling character by far is Shylock, but um, favorite's a strong word to use. But I might even say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Shylock's my favorite because he's so compelling. He's bigger than the play. He's so, anyway, this is, I'm about to start talking about it. And this is, just go listen to the podcast, people. Yep. (laughs) Go listen. Make sure you subscribe to the plays, the thing. Um, also, we are going to be on, here on, on Close Reads, we're going to be diving into Marilyn Robinson's novel Home next. And so we'll read the first, uh, I think it's like 47 pages or something for that. Um, so, you know, if you don't have a copy of that, it's pretty widely available in libraries and online and bookstores and things like that. Uh, and that will take us right up to the launch of uh, the release of her new book, at the uh, Jack, which comes out at the end of September, I think, September 29th, I believe. And then, of course, we have the Patreon page, the Patreon content, and we are going to be starting our conversation of The Lord of the Rings starting next week. So we're going to talk about the first chapter and kind of give you a preview of how we're going to approach that book. This, the reading schedules for all of this will go out in an email uh, to the Close Reads newsletter uh, today or tomorrow. Um, today is Wednesday. So by the time this airs later today, or goes up later today, um, I, I'll probably send it out tonight or tomorrow morning. Let's put it that way. Uh, so head over to closereads.substack.com to sign up for that. And we will also post it on Instagram and on Facebook if you're uh, following us in one of those two places. But speaking of Facebook, that brings me to this week's episode. We are here to answer your questions about... Heidi, did you want to say something? No, I just thought I was giving you like a thumbs up for your smooth transition there oh oh see what happened was as you were giving me the thumbs up i was clicking out of zoom onto the browser to go get the questions and so all i saw was your hand go up it looked as like I, I was, was raising away. my hand yeah i was like oh i said something wrong um but okay yeah. let's let's get into some of these questions then uh there's plenty of them and you all have interesting thoughts on this book so let's uh let's hear from you okay so mary joe asks a good question that kind of is, you know, a good entryway into this. Oh, Tim, you actually answered this on the thread. So I'll let you repeat your answer. For longtime readers, Mary Jo asks, of Hemingway, who are no longer so reluctant, thanks to all three podcasters' enthusiasm and insights, what Hemingway book or books do you recommend reading next? Do you recall what you said, Tim? A Movable Feast and Old Man of Sea. Why, why do you say this? I think uh, Old Man of the Sea is is it's just classic Hemingway. It's all of the kind of like terse, brawny writing style. There's this um, heroic yet defeated main character who's, you know, struggling against the world yet still fights the good fight. Um, And I think there's a little bit of, this is, I think, a little bit unique for Hemingway. There's a little bit of a symbolic question at the end of the story I think is really intriguing. It's a great story for students because they'll want to talk about what happens at the end of the story. And I think a movable feast, a movable feast is sort of a retrospective of Hemingway's life in Paris. It was published posthumously, if I'm not mistaken. And it's just beautiful. It's, it's a kind of a celebration of the city. It's a celebration of being a poor married writer in that gorgeous city surrounded by friends and what it was like, what he kind of had to do to, to keep living. Um, mm. Yeah. I think they're mm. both just terrific. 
Heidi, what would you say? Is there something else you might add to the, you know, the next step of into Hemingway? I think a farewell to arms is another great entry point. That's what a lot of high schoolers read. It is, it has more of a plot that an understandable plot, which I think is helpful for an introduction to Hemingway. Um, Mm -hmm. And it, you know, as Tim said, it has all the classic Hemingway existential sadness as well as beautiful writing. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think that one's great too. I'm actually, I've never read a movable feast. So at the beginning of this series, you two were, you know, rhapsodizing, rhapsodizing. Yeah. That's probably a nicer word for what I was going to say. And um, Hugh were talking about it. So I, I um, am listening to it. There's a really good audiobook version and it's only four hours or something. So coming off the 37 hours of Lonesome Dove, this feels like, you know, no work at all. <laughs> so uh, it's a really, really good um, audiobook. So if you want to, you know, dive into that, but uh, want to go the audiobook route, the, the version on Audible is quite good. Okay. Jill has an interesting question, which is a theory, which we should at least present here. I want to hear what you guys think of this. So, so this is what she says. I have a theory I've been trying to work out in my head. Could be totally off, but here goes. The sun also rises, has all these circles, right? I keep picturing Brett at the center of one circle. And she, then uh, Jill quotes the, the line where it says, dancing around her as an object to worship. Uh, there's the bullfighter at the center of another circle with the crowd of worshipers in the bullring. So is there a third circle that has Jake at the center? Creating a sort of, she says, does it create a sort of Trinitarian overlapping set of circles? Or maybe she, she said, or maybe an inverted Trinity since everything in the book is an inversion of conventional motifs and themes. She still says, sorry if this is totally off base or weirdly conceptual. I just keep feeling like there's something there, but I can't quite put my finger on that. What do you guys think of this? Heidi, what do you think? I, I think it's really that the circle motif is really important in this book. Um, I think one of Jake's great tragedies is that he's always on the outside of the circles. There's all of this centripetal force that pushes him to the outside, including his wound and his uh, frustrated love. Um, I think Mm -hmm. if he was at the center of a circle, it would undermine kind of the pathos of his character. So I don't see that, but I do see um, the, the motif of circles is super important for the book. And um, I think that Jill's really, onto something and in reading, rereading it again, that's an important, I think, important kind of close read tool to get to the heart of the book. Tim, do you want to add anything? I just want to say, I think this is interesting because I think you're right that he seems like he's on the outside of the circles, but in some ways it feels like it's almost like um, a Venn diagram thing where there's all these circles and a small part of him is in a bunch of different circles, but he's never really in the center or firmly in any one circle. So mm-hmm. he's kind of got a foot in the circle that's, you know, Lady Bratz and some sort of in the bull fighting one because he's sort of a aficionado. He loves it, but he's not really a part of it. And so he's kind of, he's both on the outside, but he sort of dips his water, his toe into the water of all these circles. Um, and that I think in some ways, you know, the fact that he's adjacent, at least adjacent to all these circles is what drives a lot of the pathos of the book. So I think it's at least an interesting, interesting. um, I I don't think it's a theory. I don't know that. I think it's actually observation, but I don't know about the, um, I don't know that I would say there's an inverted Trinity thing going on there. Uh, That might be 
more than I would want to say. Let's see here. Matthew did, Matthew did say something interesting. He says, perhaps in being the narrator of the novel, he becomes the center of the circle of readers reading it, making us dancers around his image as our wounded Fisher King, which is, I kind of like that. Mm-hmm. Um, That's good. Okay, so Katie asks, are, do you have any thoughts on why Hemingway chose the word pretty for that last sentence? Tim, this is a classic close read question. Why did the writer choose a very specific word? <laughs> The last line of the of the book when Brett and Jake are riding through Paris after the parties have ended and she's left the bullfighter and she and Jake are back kind of in the same place that they started and they're doing the same sort of thing that we've seen them do over and over, which is Brett cries for help or attention and Jake gives it to her and she says, wouldn't, wouldn't, couldn't we be wonderful together or something like that as they're driving around? And Jake's line is, help me if I, help me not to miss it. Isn't it pretty to think so? Yes. And I take that as, I take that as, I think Jake is growing weary of the game. And I think that, isn't it pretty to think so is kind of just a signal that we've been, we've been play acting and it's pretty to think that we could be good together. But my hunch is that Jake is, has been through it a few too many times. And I don't know that he thinks that he can keep Mm. play acting anymore. Mm. Do you think he's being sarcastic? Is it just like dripping with sarcasm then? I don't think so. I think he cares enough for, for Brett. Uh, he hasn't been, he's been sarcastic other times that he's really cared for Brett. I don't think he's being sarcastic. I think he's, he's just sort of signaling. It's a mirage. Maybe there's a little sarcasm in there, but I think it's more of kind of a signal like, yeah, this is this, this hope, this idea that we keep, um, you know, un- unpacking and rolling out whenever we're both sad that we could be happy and good together is a mirage mm-hmm. and we can't keep doing this. I don't know that they have that conversation that night. My suspicion is that they don't, but I think sometime, sometime in the near future, he's not going to show up for her. This is completely subjective. This is just based on what... Uh, the novel has given us up until this point, they could go on playing that game for another 15 years, maybe. But I, I read a lot into that. I mean, it's funny that people ask about the word pretty because I read a lot into that word. And I, I, it's, it's got so much, uh, is portent the right word? It feels like there's a lot going into that word. And that my read is, yeah, the relationship is almost done. It almost feels like if he had used a more eloquent word or whatever, like a more complicated word, it would have made the line less complicated. The fact that it's sort of a mundane word adds a sort of drama. It heightens it in a way. Heidi, do you want to add anything? Yeah, I do. Because I think that they're going to go around the same tree forever. Mm. I think that that's the meaning of the word pretty. I think that it's like there's 
<laughs> pretty is, it's not really a synonym for beautiful. It's not, it's, there's, there's a cheapness, a veneer to it. There's a fragility to prettiness, whereas there's not to beauty. Hmm. Everybody knows that a pretty woman won't be pretty forever. Everybody knows that pretty is transitory and it, it disoperates, it changes, it decays. Uh, whereas beauty is objective. I know that that's an ongoing debate, but you know, I definitely take the stand that beauty is objective and, um, and pretty is not, and Mm. that pretty is temporary. And so I think, and fragile, and I think that's the meaning of what he's saying. Isn't it fragile? Isn't it transitory? Isn't it a little sad because it's going to fade to think so? Um, and because I do, I agree with Tim that there's, um, that Jake knows that his, that he's never going to be with Brett, but I don't, I definitely read the end as just another time around the same tree. The same thing will happen next year when the same thing will happen the year after, um, the circles of, um, of repetition that we see in Ecclesiastes, like vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Um, the seasons come, the seasons go, there's a time for everything. And, and we will as humans come back to the vanity of life. So I, but I think that the word pretty is meant to express the fragility and the falseness of Hmm. their attachment. It's not a beautiful attachment. Well, let's use that as a segue into this next question that Ilya asks. Oh, where is it? Okay, here's, she says, Jake and Brett met in the hospital when Jake was injured, so they never had a chance to develop a relationship that did not include Jake's injury. Do you think that their romance or even their friendship would have lasted or would have begun in the first place if not for the tragedy of being unable to consummate it? So, Great question. If, if what you're saying is true... To what extent is his injury the thing that keeps it fragile? And to what extent is it something aside from the injury, I guess, is the part of that question that I didn't need to add. <laughs> right. I think that there's, interestingly enough, I would turn this around. And I'm really curious to hear what you all, the two of you think about this. Because anytime you're speculating about something that's outside of the text, it's completely mm-hmm. open to interpretation and it says a lot more about you as the reader than the book, right? So I would argue or that- Or it's mystical. Yes. I would argue that his injury is what makes their relationship permanent, not transitory, because she cycles through men so quickly because she can sleep with them and discard them. Uh, and I don't think she's a monster. I don't think she's a man-eater. I think she's just sad. And this is one of the things that distracts and fills her the same way getting drunk does, right? So she's, I think if it wasn't for Jake's injury, he would have just been another one of the men that had been, you know, that got to sleep with her and was then discarded. But because he's injured, that's what keeps this permanent tie between them so that they can kind of subsist on their longing for each other, but never consummate it, which creates uh, this super dysfunctional long-term bond between them. Hmm. 
What do y'all think about that? Hundred yeah? percent. I completely. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, Heidi. I think if they were able to consummate their relationship, I think they would have lasted a couple more weeks. And I don't know that Jake would ever hear from Brett again. And now the the question on the other side is um, if they'd been able to consummate their relationship, would Jake have been stayed in love with exactly Brett? And I don't even know that he would. Do you think that he would stay in love with her? Because I don't, I don't know that he would. I don't either. I think it is their wounds that creates the bond, which I think is yeah. at the heart of the book because yeah. a, the, because their their bond is commentary on the larger social issues and then commentary beyond that on vanity, vanity, all's vanity under the sun. And so those concentric circles, their relationship, the society they're living in, the universal question of vanity are all created by this bond that mm. they have because they're mutually wounded and wounding each other. And I think that's again goes to the comment about how pretty it is, right? It's not beautiful. There's, but it's it's enough to create this veneer of attraction, fascination, and attachment, but not enough to be beautiful or meaningful, yeah, or healing, yeah. Okay, let's move on because we have lots of questions here. As always, Q and A episodes a little feel a little abrupt. But Amy asks, "What is the purpose of Bill?" I'm I'm dramatizing <laughs> the fact that it's all caps. Um, Heidi, you no, you commented in response. What an insightful question! So that means that you get to. No, get to I actually want to hear the answer from the two of you. I'm confused about this character every time I read this book. I I am confused by Bill. Also, I'm so happy that he's there because I think he's funny. And he's right. playful. And he's I think delightful. he's, yeah. And I think he and Jake really enjoy each other's company. Um, by the way, we skipped the question, which some modern commentators have put forward, which is, are Bill and Jake interested in each other? And I, I don't think so. I think that's hard. I mean, you could, you could. That's like, why we skipped it. <laughs> you could read something between the lines. I don't know, though. I don't know if that's there, but I, I think, I mean, I, I don't want to dismiss Bill as saying it's comic. Re- he's comic relief. Cause I think he's more important than that. Um, but what role? I don't know. Yeah. What's the purpose? Why isn't he, he's like not, he's attracted to Brett, but he's not destroyed the way that the other characters are by this yeah. experience. I'm yeah. curious. What do you think, David? Craftsman-wise, our, our commentator on craft. What's the purpose of any of these characters? Like, can you point to any, any other character in the book and say, I know exactly what the purpose of this character is? In the story? Yeah. I feel like I can, yeah. but is that part of your... Yeah, I, I feel like I, I could in, the, in kind of the narrative of mutual destruction in Pamploma that he doesn't seem to participate or he participates, but doesn't, he seems intact throughout troubled, but intact. Well, I think you just described his purpose then. Yeah. To be kind of a stabilizing force. I actually, so (laughs) I actually don't believe what I just said. I actually (laughs) think that, um, 
I mean, you just you just said what could be the reason. I do think so. But I don't believe that Hemingway writes that way. <clears throat> like, I don't think he thinks of these characters. Like, I don't think he is trying to create some sort of like an archetypal system where a character represents something or where a character is like, like, especially in this book. Like, I think he would say, people come and go. Like, and you run into characters all the time you know you're living your life you run into you know somebody who either enlivens or destroys some experience and sometimes and then after the fact you're like well that was weird that that guy was there um or i wonder whatever happened to that guy um or i should write that guy a letter or you know search for that person on facebook um and i i just don't think that hemingway felt a need to to answer a question like that, because I don't think he thought about characters that way. Um, and to, that sounds like maybe a cop out, but um, like, I don't, you know, I just don't think that he was, he was being Dostoevskyan or Shakespearean about his characters very often. Um, I think that's one of the reasons why he is both either beloved or disliked by a wide swath of people, because he doesn't always make it clear what the purpose of a character is. Uh, and I think he would say that, that's mirroring what life is like, but that would you, would you consider that a cop out? I think that's a cop out, David, because I think the other characters I'm with Heidi, every other major character in the book plays a, plays a clear role in the rising plot action in the ultimate climax of the play of the falling action. They all kind of play a role, but I honestly feel like, feel like if Bill was plucked out, he might not. Uh, the structure of the book would wobble a little bit, but would still be intact. And so, I, it, for me, it's kind of the question of if all of those other ca- characters do seem to play such a vital role in the structure of the book, into the character development of the other characters. Why does this one not seem to? If there was three other characters, I probably wouldn't ask the question, but. He's the only one that I can really see. You're saying like you could pull Bill out and the book would be the same? Of course it would be different, but I think it would be largely unchanged. And I think the other characters would be largely unchanged. Well, okay, so my... Would we even... I think I might take issue with the first part of what you were saying there. Um, like, if we said... If we had a discussion about what's the denouement of this book, what's the rising action, what's the falling action, would we even agree? I think we'd be close. Maybe. Um, Yeah, it seems like a very tightly constructed narrative when you read it closely and a very loosely constructive narrative when you don't. Mm-hmm. You know, your first reading of this book is like, what is even going on? Yeah. This is just about people traveling around Europe and drinking. And that is not the soul, the heart of the book. And right. Um, so, yeah, and I do agree with him. I, I think you could pull him out. But other than the fishing scene, he's necessary in the fishing scene. Um, well, okay. Uh, let's take, hold on, hold on. What do we mean by purpose? I mean, what does it serve in the narrative? Like what, what, um, if you're writing a tightly constructive narrative, each character does something there. 
like fulfills a purpose. You need a Robert Cohn here because you need the love triangle in order to create the mutual destruction. Um, you know, and sometimes it's minor. Um, you know, you need the count is a pretty minor character. Uh, he lets us well, he I'll, lets us in on who on who Brett is at the beginning. So I don't Well, Bill's Bill you have to have okay, if we're talking about it that way, you have to have somebody who's outside of the it's not a love triangle, it's like a love quartet. Right. Quintet. A love circle. Yeah. And he's the essential yeah, yeah. I mean, essentially he's the one that's outside of it. And so in a way he then represents the reader. So you said earlier that he um you said earlier, David, that he's not uh, that Hemingway doesn't write like Dostoevsky or Shakespeare. He's not Dostoevskian or Shakespearean or something. I think was mm-hmm. the phrase you used, but yeah. maybe he is Shakespearean because earlier you said or earlier in the podcast, several podcasts ago, you said that he's um, like very influenced by Shakespeare. And then oh you, no, I agree with that. Just, I was just thinking this particular this one particular way, right? But here's where I'm going to say maybe you are totally right maybe bill is the outside character the antonio the um the sebastian character not sebastian who's the anyway the leftover character the one at the end who doesn't get the, the girl. horatio yeah um that provides something for the main character then so anyway that's that's another well i do think he like offers a sense bill. of um uh rootedness or balance for Jake because when yeah, when he leaves true. Jake kind of spirals you know like he does things with Jake that are aside from his pining over the fact that he can't be with Brett they go they go fishing together and stuff like that so he does seem to be like a sort of balancing force against the uh despair that could can uh, overcome Jake um but that's not like that doesn't answer the question of what he does for the plot. I I think it might though. I I think that that's the that works. That he provides stability, and he he demonstrates to the reader what a good friend that Jake is, not just to Brett but to other men, and that's important. I haven't like talked about this on the show yet, but I'm sort of, I've been contemplating a theory for Hemingway that I, that I think largely his characters, I don't know exactly how to say this because I haven't thought and I haven't gotten far enough in my thinking to express it properly. <laughs> I haven't gotten to that expression point of my contemplation, but I think that Hemingway's books and his, his are less driven by action and more by perspectives and how points of views, points of view, points of views, points of view, points of view um, evolve and and like are informed by other points of view, and then how that impacts action less than how actions, how people make actions happen, if that makes sense. And so I think he, I think in a lot of his books, he's giving us these colliding perspectives, and he doesn't often comment on which perspective is right. And so sometimes you get a character like Bill who sort of gets you outside of all these colliding perspectives and kind of represents the reader 
and can sort of be a, a sort of balancing force against all those colliding perspectives. I don't know if that makes any sense. Like I said, I hadn't gotten to the point where I was <laughs> I was ready to actually express what I'm thinking about. But I, I just think that he is, I think that for Hemingway is extreme, I think he is way more interested in points of view and perspective than he is in the action of a book. Um, then it's not, that's not unique to, to Hemingway, of course. You know, that's insightful. I think that that's true. And I think that's why exactly what you're saying is why when you first read this particular novel, uh, you're, you do have that response of what is this book about? <laughs> like that's because you, in order to get to the heart of the book, you, you have to, you have to put yourself in every single character's place behind every single character's eyes uh, or else it's just, you know, an exercise in frustration at people being idiots, right? <laughs> so, but when you do that and then there's the cultivation of empathy that we've talked about, then you really start to see a prism, right? Multiple perspectives on the same kind of banal event, banal event. And that's... um uh, that that I think will take people into the soul of a Hemingway novel, and this one that's super helpful for this one in particular, David. Okay, let's let's move on. Um, Tim, Wendy asks, would one need to know the time period and events and more backstory of when this was written to be able to fully appreciate the story? It seems the story might be difficult to understand and appreciate since this book isn't very plot driven, and the author doesn't give us information give us the information in the book. What do you think about that? I think that it's this book is it is crucial to remember that it's happening in the back shadow of World War One. I. I think we talked about this maybe on the third episode, but I, I think if someone's teaching this book, it, I, I prefer to kind of like let students launch into a book without kind of um, framing the book too much kind of like let the, let the students experience really um, be free and provide some guidance, et cetera, et cetera. But I think for, for the most part, especially 20th century literature, I prefer to not frame books before students start reading them. Maybe for something really complex like Dante's Inferno and Purgatorio and Things but, born out of completely different cultures. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there it's completely fair and really needed to give a frame. But I think for 20th century books, I feel a little bit reticent to do that. That being said, I think that before students start to read or before we start to read, The Sun Also Rises, I think talking about the devastation of World War I is crucial. And it's not just devastation wrought by military exploits, which they were horrific, by the way. It's probably just, I mean, they were absolutely horrific because you've got a, basically, an, you've got old world armies with old world tactics fighting with new world weaponry. And so you, there are stories, story after story after story about the early part of the war when, um, machine gunners would sit up in nests and just mow down hundreds, if not thousands of soldiers who were climbing the hill because they had to take the hill and they had no other, uh, had no alternative strategy for 
taking a machine gun nest other than to charge it over and over and over. It was devastating. I think the kind yeah. of cultural and psychological and spiritual uh, destruction that happened during and after World War I is really hard to underestimate. And I read this quote from Annie Dillard that that was kind of the time that the West kind of saw itself as before World War I as kind of having a common project. That common project was... Uh, imbued with a lot of Christian values. It was imbued, imbued with um, this sense that the entire world would be civilized according to kind of Western ideas. And when World War I hit, that those ideals began to suffer. And I think they began to suffer... Um, and I think this is the first generation that's kind of realizing what's going on, like how this common project is no longer going to be viable. Hmm. And so they're lost. They're spinning. They're not, they can't participate together in that project anymore. So what are they going to do instead? They don't know. They just don't know. Hmm. I think that what you're talking about is good evidence why subjects are are not always the best idea. <laughs> like I think if you cuz you could I mean like if you're if you're if you're having to separate your English from your history. Yeah. It complicates yeah. your process, but if you if you're t- looking at these things as liberal arts that you're studying in you know cooperation with one another, then there's, there isn't this weird question of well, you know, you read this book along the same around the same time you're teaching early 20th century history along with other books. And then these books begin to have conversations with one another and you don't have to answer every question uh, because the very fact that they're having conversations with one another becomes revelatory for the students. Right. Uh, but when you have to separate things into classes with subjects and read things on their own. Um, and those subjects you know, might be it makes dis- it more disjointed chronologically. Like yeah, someone exactly. might be reading, you know, whatever. Um, paleolithic, you know, evidences in history while at the same time doing a novel about World War I, the student then doesn't get to kind of like cross-pollinate his imagination and memory and analytic abilities with, and put together that the military history of World War I and the kind of cultural history after World War I to see those two things is really informed by each other. If you do it, like if, if you separate them into subjects and those subject, subjects are chronologically disjointed. And, and when you study them together, you, you experience the expression of the experiences that the people were going through. Yeah. You know, like yeah. you, it feels appropriate and right and you, and you sense it, you feel it, you know, whereas if you read, you know, Camus or Hemingway or something outside of, or, 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 you know, even Dante, for example, outside of the yeah. period, you don't feel or get us the sense it's pure. It's, it's your, your, um, ability to, to, to kind of get the context is purely intellectual. Whereas if you're, you know, studying all these things together as a sort of cohesive project, if you will, then you begin to, you know, 
sense it and feel it and it becomes more comprehensive in terms of your in terms of how you learn it. Well said. I, I want to add something, David. Heidi and I kind of made a plea for this book earlier in in an earlier episode that um it's tempting to read The Sun Also Rises as a sort of philosophical assertion of new nihilistic ideals. And I think if you read this book kind of independently of World War I, you could, you could do that. I think it'd still be completely unfair to do that, but it would be tempting to do that. Um, and so I, I think this is another, this is a good example of a reason why books should be read in a historical context and not just like you were saying, David, you know, plucked from um, an anthology and inserted into a subject class. Because I think independent of understanding what happened in World War One, especially what happened culturally with World War One after you know, all the destruction by these supposedly Christian nations, then then if you don't know what just happened, then it's really tempting to say this was an agenda. Hemingway's driving an agenda. And I think, and I think Mm -hmm. I'm speaking for Heidi also, correct me if I'm wrong, Heidi. Well, to me, Hemingway is more responding to the times and articulating the times more than he's driving an agenda. It's not to say that Hemingway didn't have an agenda. I think he had a like a very particular articulatable philosophical viewpoint. I think that viewpoint became more articulated in later works, but I think this book especially is an articulation less of a philosophy and more an observation of the times. Hmm. Which goes to what David said last week about him being a journalist. Yeah. Um, yeah. He's, he's He's reporting. This is this is how people are feeling. This is what people are doing. Yeah, there like, you I, go, reader. <laughs> I get this. I get this weird. I get fr- you get this weird sense that people are like, "Well, that Hemingway guy was just a bummer, and he just created like yeah. he thought up out of thin air this like bummer of a story that you know, and exactly. he just presented it that way, and that exactly. and so I don't want to read that. Right. But it's an expression. It's an articulation of the way the world was experience was living, you know, of the, with the things that they were going through. Um, and it's both, a it's both a window into that and a mirror of it and, and a way for us to be able to, you know, to experience it, to, to understand it. Um, go ahead, Tim. When you, when you, when a person attends, when, when you attend a funeral for somebody who's really important to you, um, when a speaker from behind the mic speaks on behalf of that person's life and articulates what who that person was and what they lived for and why they were important. There's this great sense of, I experience a great sense of relief and a great sense of, it's almost, um, I'm sure the Germans have a word for this. There's a sort of joy in hearing it named. The Germans. <laughs> yeah. Like, they've got a, they got a weird word for everything. Right. Especially the kind of emotional states, like kind of like, Conflicted emotional states. What's I, the I just, opposite of Schadenfreude? That's what. That's the word that made me think the Germans surely got a name for this. But you know, when someone someone can name 
a person's life and describe the kind of life that they live, there's a, there's a, almost like a relief that I feel in attending that funeral because this person understands it and articulated it to us and for us. And I think that's what this book is. I think that someone reading this book in 1930, having fought in the war, would feel a great sense of relief and maybe even a glimmer of joy that somebody else could name it. Somebody else could say, this is what it feels like. Yeah, today Mm -hmm. we say it's what's being felt, heard or known or seen. Yes, right, right. Tim, what are you holding on your lap? It's a lap desk. It's a... Oh, it's like a little okay. lap desk, yeah. I see, I see. You're holding it. I thought it was like a picture frame with like a the bellows of a blacksmith shop or something. Right. <laughs> as disheveled as my cottage is, it would not surprise me that I would be, I mean, it's entirely possible I'd be holding the bellows of a blacksmith shop. Readers There's, maybe- a, donkey. <laughs> There's a donkey going in circles, pulling a- <laughs> Grinding grain. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, people, you you were so into the like 18th century, 19th century Russians that you've just recreated that environment yes. in your in your cottage. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go. Pull, <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna go pull water from the well after we get done here. Yeah, no, yeah, I was gonna say to readers might mile. be interested. No, this is my last day in Seattle. I'm moving home to Atlanta beginning tomorrow morning. Tomorrow morning, I start the drive. It's a big day. It's a really big day. It's a very big transition. Bittersweet day so are you, the, are you driving i'm driving i'm making multiple stops along the way I'm making a couple of longer stops along the way but the drive begins tomorrow morning don't let anyone break into your car and hotbox while you're stopped at some hotel somewhere that would be bad but it would give you a nice full circle story for the podcast it sure would wow okay next uh, next question tim you mentioned in the first podcast that you finally realized who the group of young men were at the bar yeah who were they I think they were um, a group of gay men. I'm pretty confident that's who they were. Uh, did we okay. talk about this off the air? Heidi, did we talk about this off the air? I don't think so. Yeah. Um, and I've, I've talked to a couple other friends of mine who've read this book a few times. And I'm like, who's the group that Brett first appears with? And they think the same thing. So I think it's, I don't know what page that's, that's on. but That's the assumption. I made that assumption. You made that assumption. So, I, I don't know. It yeah. took me three or four reads before I, I put that together. Men who like Jake are not a threat, essentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but there's something funny yeah. about Jake does not like them. Even though presumably mm-hmm. he does not perceive them as a threat, there's, there's something, and maybe he just doesn't like gay men. Maybe that's what it is. Um, but it's, it's curious because his response to them is not the sort of response that he has when uh, he figures out that Robert Cohn is has been lurking. I think he's a little bit more defensive when Robert Cohn has been lurking, but not so with uh, the guys he sees at the bar. Okay, uh, let's see. Rachel asks, the lost generation's wound, um, World War I, happened in Europe, but maimed Americans like Jake choose to stay there. America is not painted as a place of home or healing. Europe isn't either, but it is a place of release. Self-medication is possible here. Could you comment on prohibition and what Hemingway might be saying about the U.S.? Has it too failed the lost generation? So is the implication here that because of prohibition, the lost generation wasn't giving 
veterans a way to cope. That that's interesting. Um, do you think that Hemingway, in his canon in general, has lacks faith in the American, um, the the capability, the potential of America to be a place of healing? I think that's a really good question. Um, I I think in my contemplations of the lost generation um, and the expatriate movement to Europe by this circle of writers and thinkers and artists, my, my attention has been more on the question of displacement, the question of feeling as, as though being a, there, there's no obligation to their homeland. Um, they can drift about and find someplace they just like better. Um, but it's, it, it's not a consumer mentality, um, because the consumer mentality tends to have the, um, kind of at the heart of it, this sense of looking for the perfect place that's going to fulfill them. And the last generation doesn't seem to expect fulfillment at all. They expect that they're going to be sad and drift around uh, from place to place and from people to people and from uh, sensory experience to sensory experience. Uh, they're people inherently of the body. The food is better in Europe, right? The wine is better in Europe. Um, it's prettier. There's stuff to look at that we don't have. And so I'll just go there and drift around knowing I'm never going to be happy or fulfilled. Um, and, and so it seems less of a rejection of the American ethos and more of, or the American experiment, the American ideal. It's less of a rejection of it and more of just a, a sense of displacement and drifting. Um, and so... I, I'm not saying that there's not a rejection of the American ideal, uh, but I think my attention has been more on the sense of displacement, the lack of, of, a, of a feeling, of, it's more just a feeling of constant exile, exile from themselves, exile from home, exile from each other, exile from the moorings of the past, as Tim so eloquently uh, addressed a few moments ago. Yeah, personally, I think that if if it's, if it is a criticism of that or an expression of that, you know, incapability of America, I think it's more just, it's more of an expression of that because they didn't go home. Like Hemingway, right. this is a Ramona Clef, someone else mentions Hemingway just, mm -hmm. he's writing about his own experiences and he didn't go home. So, I mean, right. not then. So um, he's not home in this, you know, in what he's describing here. So I, if it's a description, I think it's an inadvertent description of that mm -hmm. more than it is like a direct, uh, like sort of reflection or contemplation on that. Do you want to add anything, Tim, or should I ask there, you the next question? There's something also that's going on in the United States around this time. And Hemingway might be part of the first kind of classrooms of students to experience this. I, if higher education is beginning to shift its gaze away from the local and more toward the national. So I, I think Wendell Berry would have a real complaint about kind of educationally what's happening in the United States around this time. Instead of focusing on, if you were born and raised in Kansas City, instead of focusing on the kind of agrarian situation, the political situation in Kansas City and around Kansas City, 
then instead the preoccupation is going to be with Washington DC politics and with New York economies. And I think that sort of begins a, an ideological displacement for that generation that really, um, is adrenalized by the fighting of World War I. So I wonder if that's also contributing to this this sense of being a lost generation, that we're not Mm. tied anymore to the locale that we grew up in. Mm. Hmm. Yeah. Okay, abruptly again, let's transition to this next question. Nicole asks, Tim, I'll just ask you this one, and then if you want to jump in, you can, but... um, why does Jake refer to Robert Cohn always with first and last name, but none of the other characters by their full names? Only in dialogue is he referred to as Robert. And then Reagan points out that most of the other characters, their names are shortened to Mike, Jake, Bill, and so forth. Robert could have been Bob or whatever, but Hemingway doesn't do that. So there's like a formality that's left in his, his name there. Curious if you have any thoughts on this. I took it exactly as the writer of the question put it, there's a formality to it. And I think that formality is a distancing, has a distancing effect. Um, Like when I talk about you, David, to Heidi, I never say David Kern. And if I did say David (laughs) Kern, there's, right, there's a sort of, like- You call him DK. I do call him DK sometimes. But to call him David Kern would be to sort of illuminate something that doesn't need to be illuminated his last name. So why am I doing it? I this think doesn't it, explain why Heidi refers to her husband as Scott White. The Scott oh, White. Oh, the Scott White. Sorry. It's, right. it's yep. both honorific and does, tender. Yeah. Yeah. It's yes. honorific and tender at the Got same it. time. Yes. You're right. You're right. You're very right. Yeah. And I just think we all refer to him maneuver. as the Scott White as well. So The Scott White. Yeah. Perfect. I like that answer. Heidi, do you want to add to that? Nope. Okay. Mm-mm. Anne asks about baths. I don't know if you saw this one. I noticed at mm. one point that there are at least three times where Brett says she needs to bathe. They're all kind of odd, like before dinner. I feel like mm-hmm. something is being done there or what it, or when it happens so often. I think that is a, an excellent point there. It happens a lot. And so we might, maybe he wants us to take note of it. Uh, do you have any thoughts on this? Yes, I have many thoughts on this, but we didn't get to it in the podcast because as we kept saying, there's... Okay. So much in this little book. There's so much in this. Every word is carefully chosen. <laughs> and as we always say, there um, is a Q&A episode. Yes, that's right. Uh, but yes, I think that uh, her, she, she talks about bathing a lot and that's a sacramental image, right? The idea of cleansing mm-hmm. um, and preparation. Uh, and uh, also there's, you know, there's a very symbolic, baptism is a very, a deep symbol in all of literature. But if if characters are going into water and coming out of water, pay attention or referring to water. Uh, so yeah, the idea of bathing, I think, has the cleansing, the preparation, and also the death and rebirth, which she can't ever seem to achieve, right? There's, as you point out so rightly, David, I really want to talk about this at some point. There's no catharsis in this book. It's missing. Like there is no sense of ever, Brett, going under the water to die and coming up reborn. So she always talking about needing to bathe. Mm-hmm. I think that's significant. Yeah. And uh, Matthew, in another comment, um, he kind of comments on my points about Catholicism from last week, but he points out that there's a lot of cleansing images throughout the book, shaving, polishing, bathing, swimming, rain, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, it happens a lot. So yeah. Do we, should we, should we jump on that? Matthew's question as a transition? Yeah. I've been, mean, Yeah. I think we okay, should. so I said um, 
something about how Jake appreciates the blood. Um, and then there's this Hemingway's wine is good company. And so he asks if there, this could suggest some sacramental vision of salvation and purification for Jake. Could his wound be means by which he might participate with the gourd bull and the crucified Christ? Uh, in short, is Jake experiencing a pilgrimage toward God that he cannot articulate, or is he simply wandering? And then he also mentions any uh, ways that O'Connor might um, uh, have any common ground with Hemingway. So we can touch on all of that. I would love to know what you guys think of this because I have a feeling that we might disagree. I think so we, okay, well, I think we might also, yeah. No, no, no. You guys go first. I'm the one that gets to read the questions. Okay, so could this wound be the okay? There's a there's a couple. Okay, I'll go first. I'll go first. Just to fair is fair. So could it suggest some sacramental vision of salvation and purification for Jake? Here's how I would answer. I'm gonna go through this whole question here and I'll give my take on it, and then I'll let you guys respond and tell me that I'm wrong. Okay, so there's multiple parts to this question. Could this suggest some sacramental vision of salvation and purification for Jake? Yes, it could. I believe it does. Next question. Could his wound be the means by which he might participate with the gourd bull and the crucified Christ? Probably not. I don't think that that is what Hemingway is saying. In short, is Jake experiencing a pilgrimage toward God that he cannot articulate? Yes, because that's what all books are about. Or is he simply wandering? Yes, that is also what all books are about. So that is my take. That is what all books are about. I, I don't think I disagree with you. I, I think that Hemingway is, I do not, I do not think he is making a case for return as a culture to the faith as other Catholic writers like Flannery O'Connor are doing. And we talked about that, that last week. Yep. Um, it is way, to me, it's way more individual. Right. It's way more and about the struggle. I don't, and I don't know how Hemingway would answer this question. If you were to ask him this question, is the church and the old traditions that we have lost in World War I, that anchoring of civilization, the moorings of civilization, if we were to return to them, would they be sufficient for modern problems now? I don't know how he would answer that question. I don't think he would even think about that question. That's the problem. That, I agree. I, I agree with that completely. And so I think that's the case I was trying to make last week, um, which, you know, at three in the morning, you're like, that's what I was trying to say. Um, but um, I could be wrong this about that, This is why Hemingway complicated and great, mean, though. Exactly. I completely agree with that. And so I don't, but as everything you just said about that's what all books are about is a pilgrimage back to God, right? And that usually I, I can't be articulated. True. That usually can't be articulated, sometimes not even by the author, right. which is why I think some, that's why I hold author intent less sacred than many people in my profession. Because sometimes I think authors get to something more profound than they even intend because every single human being is on a pilgrimage back to God. And even if you don't know that about yourself, you're going to put that in your art, whether you mean to or not. And that I think happens in this book. I, so I don't think I disagree with what you just said uh, in any point at all, but I don't know if that's what Hemingway was trying to do. I don't well, know. But that, uh, see, I don't, yeah. Okay. That's why I say, could, could this, this stuff about blood and cleansing and shaving and all, and, and atonement, all these sorts of things that mm -hmm. this book is about, um, 
could they offer, suggest some sacramental vision of salvation and purification for Jake? I say that, yes, they do suggest that. And, that, and I believe that Hemingway's, work, Hemingway's life was steeped in the notion mm-hmm. of theology and sacramental visions of the world. And even if he was sometimes unsure of what that meant and how to express his dissatisfaction with it, and if he wasn't always, if he didn't always like feel positively towards that, which seems to be the case, his life was still steeped like in those ideas. And so I think that that, I think that all of his work has those ideas at the core of them, even if he wouldn't have put it that way. But that's why I take it. That's why I don't think that could his wound be the means by which he might participate with the gourd bull and the crucified Christ. I don't think he would say that. I don't think that Hemingway would, mm-hmm. I don't think he created that scenario or imagine that notion such as it is to to make some sort of um o'connor like expression of the faith but i also don't know that hemingway would say that a wound can't be the means by which a person is actually healed um i don't i i don't think hemingway was a nihilist nor do i necessarily think he was a cynic as we've been talking about um no I think he. You can't grieve and be a cynic. It's impossible. Like you, I mean, he can't be openly grieving and be cynical. Okay, that's a statement I need to understand more. But I think I agree with it. <laughs> um, because, if but you're yeah, cynic, I, if you're if grieving is a sign of caring for loss, and a cynic that wouldn't care about something being lost, is that the idea, Heidi? Yeah. Yeah, that oh, is. I say okay. Yeah. But, you know, Matthew asked the question, is Jake experiencing a pilgrimage toward God that he cannot articulate or is he simply wandering? Those are the same thing. Like, <laughs> that's what wandering they is. Are. We're always experiencing. But does Hemingway, that's the question. Does that's Hemingway the question. know Yeah, that, does Hemingway right? know it or is it like, sort of an accident? Is he saying that? Or is it just that's the reality and Hemingway doesn't know? And I don't know the answer to that. I, I look at this book and I I'm think. I'm not even interested in that question, honestly. <laughs> right. But I think it matters because I think that this is what Hemingway sets him apart from other Catholic authors of his day. I don't think you can make the case that he belongs with Graham Greene and Flannery O'Connor. I think he is, I think, I think he would yeah, say, like and the, I think he is he actively saying, like he, like I mean, if, that he's not the same school. He is lost generation, even though he's raised Catholic and he can't let go of it. He is lost generation. He is not the, the 20th century Catholic authors who are advocating a return to yeah, what has been fine. lost. Yeah, in and terms I, of categorizing them. Yeah, that's fine. Right. And I think I he would say, although I think he would say that the church and the moorings of civilization are not sufficient for the problems that we have today and for the people and their lostness. And, it, and I does this whole dispute yeah. um, hinge on intention that the other authors that we're naming as Catholics who long for a return, O'Connor being representative, they are intentional about articulating um, characters who are kind of in the throes of wrestling with their relationship to God and culturally with like what's happening. Whereas Heidi, are you, are you kind of assenting to David's point that Hemingway might be articulating, might be articulating Catholic notions, um, but those, but he's neither advocating for a return nor uh, intentionally marking out kind of like Catholic terrain for his characters. It's more like um, 
how do I describe it? It's more like the relics of his upbringing and his imagination. I, yeah, I mean, I guess I would say I don't think that he's posing the church as a solution to the modern problem. Yeah, oh, I don't think that's true. I don't. I didn't mean to express that. I think he is posing the church necessarily as the solution to the modern problem. I think that the difference between Green and O'Connor is that largely they're responding to people like Hemingway, mm-hmm. like the expression of totally agree their yes. experience. Like it, these things come in waves. Like they're not just like sitting at the table next to each other and having a conversation and writing at the same time. Like Hemingway is presenting an experience, and his life and his world is saturated with sacramental concepts and images. And so he's express, expressing his experience in a way that has been saturated by those things. And then you get people like Wah and you get Green and you get O'Connor who are then responding to that expression, you know, another generation later. Although Green was, mm-hmm. I think, born only 10 years after uh, Hemingway, maybe something like that. Um, but he's mainly thought of as, you know, World War II-ish era. Um, I lost track of what I was saying by trying to be precise there. <laughs> but I, the point is, there were res- the subordinate clauses. <laughs> yeah, they're responding. I did. Yeah, uh, I need to write more like Hemingway. They're responding <laughs> to to the response that Hemingway had to the world that he was living in, and they're offered. They're saying, you know, they're they're more hopeful ultimately in the things that Hemingway was saturated by. And so I think his I think his work, because it's saturated by that, is more hopeful than people give it credit for, even if he isn't purposefully saying this thing can solve all of our problems. But what is he saying can solve all of our problems? Um, I just don't think that's... He, like I said, he's a journalist, whereas, you know, right. if O'Connor has got that tinge of theologian in her in a way that, that Hemingway doesn't seem to be interested in. Um, I, I would and, qualify that by saying in this book. Because I do think in a book like for whom the bell tolls i think that his kind of brand of masculine existential courage is a philosophical point that he's really trying to articulate but i think in this book yeah, that's he's fair. much yeah, more yeah. the journalist yeah uh should we move on <laughs> we yeah, have sure. a lot of questions left and not a lot of time why is robert cohen never drunk says bianca I think that's not his vice. I think one of the things about Robert Cohn is that he's um, he's still trying to manage his life in order to be heroic, and he fails. And part of uh, part of that kind of descent into failure is he gets drunk that night, uh, that one time. Um, but I, I think if he was just a, a, a drunk like the rest of them, uh, he, I think it's a point of character development that shows that he's a little bit different from the rest of the people in the circle. Um, and another way of painting him as an outsider, according to the rules of the social group. And it also is another way of painting him as at least attempting some kind of moral high ground and sense of control and restraint. Um, what he wants is Brett. That's what he wants. He's not there to get drunk and party. All right. 
again, it's abrupt. I know. Tim, mm-hmm. why did Robert Cohen compare Brett to Cersei and not say Venus or Helen or even Pandora? Was it a fair comparison or does it show more about Cohen than Brett? That's from Ilya. So the the comparison that Brett makes, uh, or that Robert she makes, asks of Brett really good Cersei. questions. Ilya does, and like credit to her for those uh, very appropriate kind of alternative, you know, female symbols. I think that Robert Cohn is as much as I love Brett. I think he's right. I think she turns men into swine. I think their behavior becomes swinish around her. Uh, and so I think that's the reason why rather than it's a little bit of insight on Robert's part. I think so. I think so. Yeah. I mean, we can see it. It's, it's right there in the text. The men, like the way that Mike acts when, um, the way that Robert acts when, when, uh, you know, she, he figures out that he's being ignored by Brett, he begins to act like a swine. The way that Mike acts when she gets together with a bullfighter, he acts like a swine. I think I mean, Jake too. Yeah. Jake's doing things that he are not in his best interest and not. In, yeah. So I think it's a, a good illusion, a fair illusion. Um, let's see here. Uh, so I don't know if we'll have time to do this. Sean suggests, he said he'd like to hear us talk about uh, the Jake's time in San Sebastian and the baptismal imagery that accompanies his swimming. Uh, we've talked a little bit about some of those, but the way that um, swimming is suggestive of baptism and cleansing and things like that. But he also mentions that um, a comparison of the two cab rides that Jake and Brett take might yield some interesting implications for the ending. I don't know if we have time to do that uh, here on the show, um, but I was thinking about that when I was reading and we just kind of didn't get around to it. But that would be an uh, interesting exercise for anybody who wants to, um, to, to do that. But do either of you have any thoughts on either of those two things um, that you can express quickly on a Q&A episode? I think that immersing oneself in water, a traditional form of baptism, and Jake going swimming, I think that's a very reasonable correlative. Um, but I think that the difference being that in Christian theology, one before baptism is part of the sinful world with its corrupt nature and rising from baptism, one is joining the new world and an, um, longing for an uncorruptible nature. I think when Jake goes into the water to swim, he's one way. And when Jake comes out of the water to swim, he's the same way. So I think if he's making an allusion to baptism, it's, it's, an, it's a kind of fruitless baptism. It's the mm-hmm. sun go, the, it's like, it's the same thing. It's what Ecclesiastes talk about, talks about. Mm-hmm. The seasons change, but everything stays the same. I feel like I got to think about this because that actually, right after this is when he then has the final conversation with Brett. And so I wonder does his response to her change after he goes swimming? I don't know. Like that's, that's that a good that question. Be... A really good question. And I think it, if you look at that swim as sacramental, which I think you should, um, it's either there's, you can make one case that's a failed sacrament, right? Because he gets out of the water and he goes around the same tree. 
right? And, and I think that's a perfectly legitimate interpretation and probably my interpretation. The other way of, the other way of interpreting it is that he, um, is that it could have been a completed sacrament if he had stayed, right? Um, but she kind of lures him away and turns him into a swine again. She's Cersei again. Um, and so what fails is not the sacrament itself, the baptism itself to be healing and cleansing to Jake, but his temptation to be lured away from the place of healing and go to Brett. And that would support more of David's interpretation that he's not presenting the sacraments negatively, but the characters as not responding to them properly, which I am putting words in your mouth, but I I think that that's a little bit of what you've been getting at. Um, So is it, is it that the cleansing failed or is it that Jake walked away from the potential cleansing? Those are the two different interpretations. Yeah. It's a really interesting passage Mm -hmm. because it talks a lot about him being sort of tossed about, right? So I swam out trying to swim through the rollers, but having to dive sometimes. Then in the quiet water, I turned and floated. Floating, I saw only the sky and felt the drop and lift of the swells. I swam back to the surf and coasted in, face down on a big roller, then turned and swam, trying to keep in the trough and not have a wave break over me. It made me tired, the swimming in the trough, and I turned and swam out to the raft. The water was buoyant and cold. It felt as though you could never sink. I swam slowly. It seemed like a long swim with the high tide and then pulled up on the raft and sat, dripping, on the boards that were becoming hot in the sun. I looked around at the bay. And in a book called The Sun Also Rises, when there's a moment when he's drying himself off in the sun after a difficult swim, that's important. I looked around at the bay, the old town, the casino, the line of trees along the promenade, and the big hotels with their white porches and gold-lettered names. Off on the right, almost closing the harbor, with a green hill with a castle, or was a green hill with a castle, The raft rocked with the motion of the water. On the other side of the narrow gap that led into the open sea was another high headland. I thought I would like to swim across the bay, but I was afraid to cramp. I sat in the sun and watched the bathers on the beach. So one of the things that's interesting here is most or a lot of books are going to give us all this. Say you're reading Wah or Graham Greene or something. And then you're going to get inside his head on what all these things sort of, these observations and this experience sort of means. But Hemingway kind of like, gets us up to the moment where you're like, okay, so what's this mean to you? And then he doesn't give you what the character thinks it means. Which in a way, one of the reasons that I love Hemingway is because that feels so human. Like most of the time we, we have these observations and they feel like they mean something, but very rarely can we actually express what it reminds us of, you know? Like that's why poets write poetry, you know? Because <laughs> they see some image and then they spend all this time figuring out what the image actually means. And by the end of the poem, maybe they figured out what it meant. <laughs> um, and that, I just find that so compelling. So I don't know if I, I just, it feels like he gets us to the edge of these questions and then doesn't answer them. And that's why I don't, that's why I kind of don't, I have a hard time knowing exactly if, how, to, how to express what I'm saying about his, his sacramental view of the world. I just think his life is, his, his view of the world is steeped in the sacramental vision and he doesn't really know what to do with it. Um, and so I don't, I don't necessarily know that I would go as far as Tim, but I also, in the way you were interpreting it, Tim, but I also don't know that I would go as far as the more, you know, quite the positive take that Heidi was suggesting that I might take with a scene like this. 
Um, Cause I just think so often characters, he just doesn't give us that moment where the character says, right. I had these experiences. And then especially the stuff where this he says, means. there was the old town, the casino, the line of trees along the promenade, the big hotels, and then this big castle. And then a lot of people are going to say, it reminded me of when I was a kid, or it reminded me of, you know, like a lot of books just give you that sort of, I mean, it goes back to the thing. The moment would have catharsis because he would reflect on it. But Hemingway, his books are sad and they stay sad because there's not catharsis for us as readers. And that exactly. runs well, counter that, to what most people do. Well, and that goes back to the Fisher King legend, though. and th- Because in the Fisher King legend, you have the wounded king. And the wounded king can be healed by one thing only, which is that a knight comes to dinner and he sees the knight observes the procession in the banquet hall and the knight turns to the king and asks a question. And in the asking of the question itself is the healing of the king. Hmm. And that question is, what is the meaning of these things? That's the question. That's the healing question. Hmm. And there's, so that directly correlates to what you just said, David. And I think that is at the heart of every Hemingway novel. It is in the craft of his writing. It is in the displacement and aimlessness of his of the characters. It's embedded within the post-World War I generation and culture worldwide is that we no longer have people saying, what is the meaning of these things with any kind of significant response? They're not even looking for that. That's, I think, the whole point. And I think that's why this is, why Jake is the Fisher King. Like there's, he's a man looking for somebody to ask the healing question and nobody's doing it, not even himself. And, and so that catharsis is missing in the plot and it's also missing in the character's responses to their perspectives on life, which you also brought up mm. earlier. That's great, Heidi. That's really great. Let's let's touch on two final questions here. Um, mm-hmm. I don't. They must both might be complicated. I don't know. Leah asks a question that I'd like to like for us to at least address. Um, sh- sh- I'll I'll just read the whole question. Um, I understand. Leah says that anti-Semitism was part and parcel of the class and authors of the Lost Generation. After World War II, there were about seventy years where it wasn't acceptable anymore. Now it's back with a vengeance. There's nothing Jewish about Robert Cohn. The quotas for Jews in university meant it was highly unlikely that he would be there. Jews weren't known as boxers either, and yet Hemingway goes out of his way to repeat over and over that this odious person is a Jew. I expect that from Hemingway. I found it slightly disappointing that you went on and on about Catholicism, yet never once did you mention that although this was perfectly acceptable in the 20s, that maybe this lost generation will not only continue to be lost, but by doing so, they simply continued the horrors of World War I while adding the horrible element of genocide against the Jews. I found nothing uplifting about this book. World War I upended the social structure of Europe. The genocides may have moved out of Europe to Asia, Africa, and every communist regime. It's been 100 years of, 100 years of Jake and his friends, and that is nothing to celebrate. And the conversation went on a little bit. Um, Tim, do you have any thoughts on, 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 on this? Because there is this question of anti-Semitism in, in this book. Um, so it, It's funny because before I, I read that question online, and before we read it, I thought, you know what? We haven't really talked about whether or not Jake is anti-Semitic mm-hmm. and his friends are anti-Semitic. And I think they are. The question that's a little bit, un- and, and I think Lee is right in saying anti-Semitism is rampant at this time in European culture. I, I don't know. She refers to anti-Semitism making a comeback. I feel like I'm sort of unplugged enough on the news that I, I 
won't comment on that. I neither deny nor uh, assert. Um, the question for me is, was Hemingway doing this uh, consciously? Was he consciously through the voice of his characters articulating an anti-Semitic point of view? Certainly. Does that mean that, or if was he maybe doing it subconsciously and thus kind of giving voice to his own anti-Semitism? I don't know the answer to that. I know that he had Jewish friends throughout his life, which makes me think that he was at least kind of partly aware of the kind of anti-Semitism of the early 20th century. Um, but I'm reluctant to say that he was or was not. I, I don't feel like I know his, his life well enough to comment one way or another. But I do think that the characters are anti-Semitic in a lot of their remarks about Robert Cohn. I do think that's true. And we didn't, we, we probably could have talked about that in earlier, um, earlier episodes. Absolutely. It happens over and over again in the novel. There's despicable comments made about multiple um, people, groups and minorities and different religions. And Mm -hmm. there's, there's stereotypes everywhere in this novel and embedded within the conversation between the men. And we, we have talked about, you know, we using the term toxic masculine, this, this distorted, broken um, masculinity is, is one of the uh, core kind of indicts, indictments within the novel. And, um, and, and there's comments made about multiple and weirdly minorities rings true and now. people groups. Yeah. What? And weirdly rings true today. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And you're right. We haven't dug too much into it um, as, as we've missed so many things about this novel because there's so much richness and depth and nuance and there's so many things that we never got to talk about. You know, Heidi, I, it, it seems to me like our mode in this show is we pick books that we really love and we pick authors that we really love. And I think one of the things that I like about Close Reads is that we default toward praise and we default toward admiration. And that's kind of like what, that's sort of like the leading edge of the show. Um, and sometimes we back burner criticisms of the author or of the text. Unless um, it's me complaining about Dostoevsky overriding. Right, right. <laughs> but even that, that was kind of backloaded. You know, we kind of we kind of yeah. talked about that yeah. on the later episodes. We didn't talk about that in the earlier episodes. And <laughs> I I I like that mode that we're in. I don't think that um we're inclined to ignore the warts on certain authors or certain books. And maybe this is a wart because maybe this is an like Hemingway's unarticulated anti-Semitism. Or maybe it's uh, the, like he's giving document to the anti-Semitism of the age. Either way, it's, it's not something that we celebrate. But I think that, again, the mode of the show is to sort of delay talking, picking the author apart and picking the book apart 
And there's plenty of people doing that right now yeah. in the public square yeah, and yeah, in yeah, classrooms yeah. and in higher education. Like there's that, that exactly is, right. if you want to find that, that is easily found. Yeah, exactly <laughs> right. The one no I sometimes there. worry, I sometimes worry that because we're so um, very aware of kind of like the mode of discourse in higher education today, which is sharply critical, like almost acidic that I, I sometimes worry that we kind of step too far in the other direction. And, you know, maybe our readers will tell us that we offer too much praise, too much adoration. We should offer a little bit more criticism. I, I just think it's something we should probably be aware of because I love to kind of like relish the joy of these authors and these books, but I also don't want to look the other way at the very real shortcomings that a lot of them had, both as craftspeople and um, as kind of like ideologues. Yeah, as people, yeah. As people. I, I don't know enough about Hemingway, Hemingway's, you know, character to know the degree to which he was anti-Semitic. So I can't comment on that. The one thing I would say is that I actually think that he sympathizes as, I think the book is way more sympathetic towards Robert Cohn than the characters are. Um, mm, I think Jake agreed. is actually even a little more so sympathetic too. than it seems like totally on the surface. Agree. And so I don't think the book, for example, is considering Robert Cohn odious, to use mm-hmm. Leah's name, Leah's word. Um, I think that he, the book in general has a way, thinks way higher of him than, say, Brett and the other characters do. And I think even Jake is thinks higher of him than he admits to everybody else. But, mm-hmm. but you're talking about the idea of being positive. And that leads us to this last question. Because... Oh, where is it? Okay. Sarah asks this on behalf of our local group. How can a book that ends without hope or redemption be a heart book for the three of you? Or are we misinterpreting Tim's term? So as you said, Tim, we have, we tend to be choose books that we often like, or at least that the audience is very enthusiastic about. Um, and, or at least that one of us likes, usually one of us is a big fan of a book that gets chosen. Um, so that that's related to this question about the idea of heart books and so forth. So, Books that end without hope or redemption. And uh, they, how can they be hard books? We have many thoughts, the three of us, on sad books. Um, so maybe this is a time to, to talk about that. But Heidi, what about, what, how do you, what was your thoughts on this question? Hard books, books that don't seem to be hopeful or whatever. Yeah, I, I think that um, this is a sad book. I don't know if I would say it ends completely without hope or redemption or hope of redemption, but I like the book because it's sad. And I like the book because it makes me feel sad and connect with like the very human emotion of grief. And I I think that's one of the things I love about Hemingway is, is that it opens up. I'm a, I, I mean, we're all threes on the Enneagram, right? <laughs> um, we're productive, driven people. And I don't have a lot of time to be sad. But I mm. live a sad life. And uh, I know what it feels like to be sad. I have plenty of grief in my life. And so sometimes a book opens up a well that's cathartic and cleansing to me and internally. And I, I, this is one of those books that does that mm. for me. Mm. And that is why I like it. I don't feel any need to soften that. I don't feel any need to find a happy ending or a moral lesson in this book. I I just like it 
because it connects me with the very human emotion of grieving the fall of the world and the in these characters and and i don't think that that means that i'm just like some sad person wandering around in grief like i i just sometimes feel that and need to feel that and the fact that I have hope of salvation and redemption in my own life fills in that gap just fine. And I'm fine with just experiencing the weight of grief sometimes through a book. Tim? I welcome that. Yeah. It's, no, it's not a stranger to me. I, and, I, I, and I'm not just like wallowing. I just, that there's something about that, the fact that this book makes me feel grief that mm-hmm. is cathartic and healing, I think, in some mm-hmm. ways. Mm. I'm so with you, Heidi, like right down the line of what you said. It, it, my mom told me, my mom, um, so I'm a pastor's son. And so my, my mom often played the role in our church of she would be there when people were grieving, especially grieving the loss of a spouse or a parent or sometimes even a child. And she said when she was younger, she was eager to kind of foreshadow for the person who was in grief all of the future benefits of the resurrection and of like the benefits of suffering. And then she said, people don't want that when they're in it. What they want is someone to sit down in the grief with them and just to sit down in the grief with them. And I, it made such an impression on me because it's true. It's 100% true. And this book is exactly that for me. It's just sitting down in grief with a group of people that I, despite all their foibles and shortcomings, I really love them. I love the characters in this book. And I'm happy to just... Um, kind of join them for a time and feeling how it felt. And it adds a great amount of texture to my life because um, they're, they are part of a history that I have inherited and it's very, very real. And I have no inclination to mitigate their sadness and lostness because it's also, it's kind of part of my history, not kind of, it's part of my history. Mm-hmm. I grew up in their country. I read their books. I was informed by their views. and. I, 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 I benefit from joining them in that sadness. Yeah, I, I think I said this to you guys off air. I don't. I think unless a book is actively comedic, all books are sad, mm-hmm. and then it becomes a question of catharsis. Um, and I think what you get with a book like this is, um. It's it's all it's sort of like a, it, you get the catharsis that change of knowing that changes on the way in some books, and in other books you get the you have to remain hopeful yourself um, that change is possible. And I think in a book like this, we have to provide the hope, whereas in some books the book tells you it's going to be okay. Um, and usually that happens right towards the end, and then the book ends. Um, and so what this book does not provide is that moment of catharsis, um, like, you know, like the power and the glory at the end might have be offer a little bit of catharsis that, that's sub, that the hope is beginning. This book is, has stasis at the end. And so we are the ones that have to be hopeful. 
um, hmm. because we don't know the end of their story. Uh, Josh Gibbs talks a lot about how there might be a sense in which real ca- literary characters are actually more real than we think. He has this like essay about how literary characters will be in heaven, <laughs> which is really so. it's worth um, worth reading from a few years ago. But I think that that um, what we bring as readers, like I don't think we should insert ourselves into the book. But I do think that as readers, bringing our own faith and our own hope to a book is a meaningful part of experiencing that book um, and is one of the ways that we can can submit to it without over, overwhelming it or being overbearing to it. Um, and so I think that's the big difference with this. This book doesn't have the catharsis, and so it puts the demand on us to be hopeful. It doesn't tell us that everything's going to be okay. It asks us, well, how much hope do you have? Um, and I think that's why it can be challenging and, and difficult. And I think that's why for me, because it offers that sort of a challenge, that sort of a challenge is what helps it be sort of a heart book for me. I don't know if that makes sense. That's beautifully said, David. I kind of want to clap. <laughs> <laughs> that was the like quietest golf clap I've ever, like a two-fingered, like index a finger golf clap. clap. Well, thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, do we want to, is there anything else you want to add about this book, either of you? Um, we're, we're at the end here. We've been going for an hour and 42 minutes, so we should probably wrap this up. Wow. Next week, we'll start talking about um, uh, Home, which is Be Ready. It's a Marilyn Robinson book. It's sad, <laughs> but maybe a little bit more mm. cathartically hopeful. Hopefully cathartic. I don't know, whichever way it works. Uh, maybe it offers more catharsis than, than this book, but we'll have to see. I would love to hear whether people think this book or Home is more sad as we're reading through it. Um, oh, great question. Uh, but I'd also like to know what books we've read on this show that are not sad. I'd love to know that because I, we were talking right. about Anne of <laughs> Green Gables. One. Anne of Green Gables is so sad. There's mm-hmm. a lot of pleasure in it, but it's so sad that we are, we get this, this, this catharsis at the end, which suggests that things are going to be hopeful later. Um, Hannah Coulter, Jaber Crow, The End of the sad. Affair, Dostoevsky, Crime, Crime of Punishment, a lot of Shakespeare. Even, like, even my favorite comedy, Much Ado About Nothing, is incredibly sad. Very sad. Um, and so, you know, maybe, maybe you could say PG Woodhouse book isn't sad, but honestly, Bertie Wooster is kind of a sad guy. Yeah. (laughs) His patheticness is kind of sad. Um, was Win in the Willows sad? That's a sad, at minimum, it's melancholy. Every great story has a deeply sad part. Every one of them. Otherwise, you but don't care. I do, yeah. But this book is not intended to delight or instruct. And there are people who think that that's the purpose of art. I mean, that was believed in Western culture for hundreds of years until the moderns came along and said it's also to feel. So mm. I think that's it's a good question. It's a valid question. What's the point if it's not delightful or instructive? It's a valid question. And I would say because I, I think accessing well, hold, human okay. deep this is a whole pathos. conversation though but like how, to what degree what degree of delight is necessary for it to be good and degree delight in what sort of things like when i read a hemingway i get a lot of delight from watching how he crafts things i get a lot of delight from the way he he phrases things and the way he creates characters and the way he can like describe the water that, in that scene i just read so there's delight there does that not count it's i mean i think it does yeah i'm on well, your I, I mean i'm thousand percent <laughs> Team yes, does on that, Hemingway, did, but does that know. fall under like but, modernist delight? Tim, no, go ahead. I, yeah, 
I was just going to be silly and try to describe <laughs> the degree as being approximately, like the research has been done. It's 38 degrees of pleasure is the appropriate <laughs> amount. If it's insufficient to that, I was starting to like go down that road, but. That tells me that it's time to wrap this episode up. It might be. It might be. <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> thanks to everyone who submitted questions as always. Like I said, we will be diving into the Lord of the Rings over on the Patreon show next week. We will be doing the uh, Marilyn Robinson book home next and the merchant of Venice is over on the place, the thing. And of course there's the daily poem. So lots of good content out there for you. Um, I guess that's it. Do either of you want to offer any final thoughts? Have you, do you feel like you've no. said everything you need to say? Okay. I mean, definitely right. not said everything I need to say, but no, I have no final thoughts. <laughs> Noted. Just watch, uh, watch Heidi's blog. She's going to start a blog after this. I'm going to start um, a blog today. It's happening. Yeah, exactly. I'm not going to exactly. do that. <laughs> Um, okay, well, thanks to, thanks to everyone for your questions, as always. For Heidi White, for Tim McIntosh, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening, and until next time, happy reading. Mm-hmm.